It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome to the one place you can go for a conversation on the intersection of race and sports and also awesome Super Bowl picks. It's Kirk Morrison. It's Jason Jackson. We look forward to conversations with broadcast legend Charlie Neal. Can't wait to talk to him. Uh, and then also Stephen A. Smith. It's like a confluence of historically yeah. black colleges and universities is Stephen and um, Chris Paul have a documentary that's debuting this week on ESPN Plus that we'll discuss. And then obviously all the great work that Charlie Neal has done for 40 plus years. But, oh, yeah. uh, but first, <laughs> two times you had an opportunity to stray yeah. away from the legendary, the championship monster that is Tom Brady. But you did not, sir. Consecutive weeks, you you claimed it. Now, there's no way you could have anticipated the doors getting blown off the Chiefs. But congratulations, you called it. I appreciate it. Uh, I got everything right except for the Chiefs score. I had the winner was going to be Tampa. I had the score was going to be 31. They got 31. I had Tom Brady as a Super Bowl MVP. He got that. The only thing was I had the Chiefs getting 27, and yet they only scored nine, Jason. It, it was it – was, <laughs> I, it kind of went the way that I thought in terms of the, the Tampa Bay side. They were going to be more aggressive. They were playing at home. Um, it was just like a, a series, right, where they play three games on the road, three games on the road as a wild card in Washington, in New Orleans, and in Green Bay. And guess what? The final prize, you're going to be able to play at home. They had a normal week. They had a normal week, <laughs> yeah. and they had one of the greatest quarterbacks or actually the greatest football player of all time in Tom Brady. That, to me, was what we all knew, and I kept saying it. Um, him winning this championship with the Buccaneers, I won't need a 10-part series, okay? I'm not knocking Michael Jordan, but I don't need a 10-part series to tell me when he's done playing, he is the greatest football player to ever play. Like, when you start the NFL, you got to start with Tom Brady because he holds way too many records, and he's been big on the biggest stage that every athlete wants to be big at. That's Tom Brady has owned that. Regardless of if you cheer for him, uh, it, it, it's got to catch you. Yes. As a sports fan, the miraculous nature uh, at which he has gone to championships, now outside the system, we all used to have that come out the side of our neck <laughs> when we're trying to justify why everything was so good. Uh, and then getting to the game and standing on the mountaintop 70% of the time. Like, that's just, first of all, you don't get to that many. And, the, and then on top of it, win that many. It's just the mentality that he has, the aura that he has. That's why I couldn't go against him, Jason. I mean, I just said, how can I go against the greatest player of all time? And I know we're going to, we love Patrick Mahomes. We love what the Chiefs are doing. They won the year before. But I said, there's something about a guy who's been there. 
there's something about a guy who understands what it takes. And look, I, I see it in the NBA with LeBron James. And as many times as he's been to the NBA finals now, he knows what it takes. What's the mentality that you need? The, the focus, the don't think about what's going on on the outside. Focus on what's going on, on the court. Tom Brady was the same way. He said, I don't care about how we played during the year. We just got to be great on one Sunday in February. And that's why I, I just couldn't go against him. Well, and now to our regular job, which is uh, <laughs> aligning race and sports, not simply getting everybody squared away for FanDuel. Uh, <laughs> but we'll do it, right? If we got it, we'll do it for them. It was learned this week and confirmed by uh, Team Governor uh, Mark Cuban uh, that the Dallas Mavericks officially have made the decision um, to re exclude, remove from pregame uh, proceedings the national anthem. And Cuban confirmed it to The Athletic. And uh, I think there's so much to unpack here. So let's start with the fact that Mark Cuban has made it plain. This isn't an anti-American sentiment. It's he has a super international roster. This league, one-fourth of our players are from somewhere other than America. And I've often struggled, by the way, with the fact that we... What is it about a sports gathering that makes that the place to honor America? But it's just what we've done for so long uh, that it, this seems like they're reaching, grabbing for a third rail yeah. and receiving that type of pushback. Your view of this decision and, and some of the thoughts around it. Well, Jason, I'm glad you brought it up because uh, I go with my playing career in the NFL. And when early in my years in the NFL, they played the national anthem while the players were actually in the locker room. Okay, they would have the national anthem. And after the national anthem was over, you had to fly, whatever it may be. And then it was the whole... We, we, we would run out and it was the, you know, the away team and everybody booed and then it was the home team and everybody cheered. But that's what sports was really all about. Right. And then it changed. And I forget what year it changed, but we, we really started to take more of this military influence in, in, in sports. So once with the, the military influence kind of took over. It, you just kind of just saw, Jason, that, okay, we're going to sing the national anthem, which for me, I was like, okay, but why now? And so why are we doing this now? Because we never did it before. Even in college, they never did it before. It was a national anthem and you ran out. But you start to see that the NFL and just the, the military and how much the actual military was paying the NFL to have this influence. So this was something that the NFL was actually monetizing. They, they were getting paid from the, the military in terms of to have, um, I think the, the month of November was military appreciation. I remember we would wear these, you know, they would fine us during the season jacks for wearing, you know, out of uniform stuff. But in the month of November, you could wear, uh, you know, the camouflage colors. Yeah, you can wear the camos. And you're like, okay, for us as players, we're like, oh, we get to wear something cool. But in the back of my mind, we're thinking like, oh, it's, it's, something, it's something with this. Oh, oh, the NFL's making money off of this, too. We, we'll figure it out. But, you know, obviously in recent years, we knew what the national anthem has meant in terms of sports and how Colin Kaepernick has changed the way people kind of view the anthem in terms of sports or in terms of players. And now hearing Mark Cuban, like you mentioned, that stinging or of the national anthem before games is probably not maybe the best thing when yet 
not everybody believes in what the message is in the anthem because it doesn't pertain to them right now. So it is a little bit difficult for, I think, some players to focus on that anthem before a game. Uh, this was a decision that Mark Cuban made. He said he made it back in November. It was just recognized. You know, you, so it tells you how people kind of get into their groove before games and oh, yeah. they're not even really recognizing what's happening or not happening. This was not something that the team publicized. But Correct. Uh, NBA spokesperson Tim Frank um, clarified for the Associated Press that due to the unique circumstances of the season, this was a window that could open for them uh, because mm -hmm. teams were permitted to run their pregame operations as they see fit, uh, stepping away from the usual NBA model. So the decision to remove the anthem uh, mm -hmm. it obviously drew reaction from those who agree and yep. those who see it as an affront. Who's next, Jason? Who's next? All it takes <laughs> is one. We know that. Once it takes one, and if they're not doing it, well, do we have to do it? Because obviously it will also take away some of the distraction for some folks that just say, hey, look, well, do we need this or do we not need this? And people are still going to watch. You know, I've seen people like, oh, I'm not going to watch now. They, they've lost a viewer in me. You're still going to watch basketball. But this is one aspect of it that may not be agreed upon by all the players. So you know what? Let's just do away with this one aspect that doesn't even involve the action on the court. We should note uh, that the anthem, I dug it out, little fact-finding, first played at a sporting event at the 1918 World Series uh, to hype up the crowd, by the way. <laughs> it was not just like, hey, let's do this thing and then do it forever. Right. Uh, after that, by the way, it was mostly played during um, wartime era, not at every single game. So uh, as, as someone I think noted in the 900 comments, I was trying to dig through. Same here, yeah. <laughs> uh, nowhere is it written that we need right. to play the anthem every single game or ever. Uh, there are moments and there are places, uh, and it's fun when it gets you all riled up, particularly during the Olympics, uh, but it is uh, reasonable to review. Reasonable to review. Let's take a quick break. Our first guest coming up next, legendary broadcaster, play-by-play -play for nearly 50 years. For those of us of the, of the right age, <laughs> a voice of our childhood uh, and adolescence uh, through Black College Sports on BET. Charlie Neal joins us next on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Forward Progress continues as advertised. Broadcasting legend Charlie Neal joins us on the program. Charlie, first of all, thank you, not just for joining us, uh, but for the work that you have done uh, through the years, making a way for the, the Jasons and the Kirks of the world to uh, sit courtside, uh, to be up in the box around fields, uh, allowing our voices to radiate into these homes, telling these great stories for this massive diversion that now more than ever, people need uh, in their lives. Take us back to how this all came together for you, um, particularly when we found you on BET. And the fact that it was 40 years ago this fall, uh, you still look the same. We're, we're, it's Kirk and I that are starting to check ourselves. We were, we were little babies back then, man. Now oh, I, was, I try to tell people I was two years old when I started. <laughs> I'm only so, 42 now. I can only assume you were already calling games uh, at the time, but then as the admin of BT came around, 
uh, that, that Mr. Johnson and, uh, and other executives knew that they wanted to have this program? Well, you know, it was kind of interesting because I didn't know Bob Johnson from the man in the moon. And he happened to call me out of the clear. I was working in Detroit. Uh, at, at the, the CBS station there. And I was doing the Lions games. I was doing Big Ten games for Michigan and things of this nature. So I, I was constantly doing events and games plus my local sports show. And he called, and, and this was uh, in, in the summer of 1980. And he said, I'd like to meet with you. Your name came up. Uh, my name is Bob Johnson. I want to start a network, a black network. And I want to put some emphasis on black college sports. And I would, you know, want to sit down and talk to you uh, about the possibility of you coming on board with us. So I met him in Chicago. Uh, he flew in from D.C. I drove over from Chicago, I mean, from Detroit to Chicago, met with him. <clears throat> we sat and we talked. And I said, I believe in what you're doing. I said, I think this is much uh, well overdue. What, what your your vision is. I said, the, the thing is, a lot of people, some people, not a lot, but people have tried in the past and have not succeeded. And he says, you know, at first he said, I can't pay you a lot of money. I don't have a lot of money. I said, look, it's not about the money right now. I said, I have a job. <laughs> I said, have a, you know, I'm already working in local television. <clears throat> so all I ask is that I don't lose any money. You take care of getting me to where I need to be and things of this nature. We'll worry about the money at some other time. And that's how it all started for us. In uh, 1980, September, uh, we did our first uh, sporting event. It was uh, Delaware State in uh, uh, hosting South Carolina State up in Dover, Delaware. It was the first ever sporting event that took place on BET. You know, Charlie, how much did you want to kind of tell the story of just HBCU sports when a lot of other networks were kind of like, nah, we're not into that. But yet you mentioned Mr. Johnson and how he wanted you to be a uh, be a part of it. How much for you was in telling that story of what HBCU sports was all about? Well, that was what made it so inviting and intriguing and me wanting to be a part of it, because there was a. I was not handcuffed. I was not told what I couldn't do and what I had to do and things of this nature. It was, you know, what my vision was of telling the story, going back in history and talking about the, the Eddie Robinsons and, and the Tank Youngers and the people that a lot of uh, and players who made it. Uh, that a lot of people may not have known about from an HBCU. Yeah, people knew about Grambling for the most part. But there were a lot of schools. I mean, I, I use myself as an example. Growing up in Philadelphia, you know, I heard about Grambling and I heard about the, the schools around Philadelphia area. But, you know, I wasn't that familiar with Hampton or North Carolina A&T or North Carolina College. So this gave us an opportunity to uh, expose and tell the stories of these universities, of the South Carolina states, of the Florida A&Ms, the Jake Gaithers and the Bethune-Cookmans and Mary McLeod Bethune, not only from an a athletic standpoint, but from a historic standpoint. And that was very, very important, I thought. Sports broadcasting, great Charlie Neal with us here on Forward Progress. Uh, so much I want to unpack with you in the little time we have together. But I do want to talk about the fact that in that time, early 80s, late 70s, you were seeing black players, retired players, getting opportunities in television. You weren't seeing professional play-by-play -play announcers getting that breakthrough. After you checked that box for us, 
how proud have you been over the years that even though it's still nowhere near where it should be in balance, uh, that, that that was a ceiling that you crashed in and other black men followed after you? Well, yeah, it, it, that, that was, you know, amazing because uh, in addition to doing stuff for BT, I was doing stuff for Turner. I did the, I was Ernie Johnson back in, in the mid eighties. Uh, I, I was doing stuff for CBS sports. Uh, you know, I was doing play, I was a play by play guy for college gymnastics, for college basketball, for college football on CBS. Uh, I did NBA basketball for Turner. In addition to the, to the studio show, I did games with Bill Russell as my analyst. So, I mean, these were things, like you said, breaking the, that ceiling, and hoping that you did a good enough job that it would open doors for other people, the Gus Johnsons of the world and, and uh, the people that are, are up and coming, uh, Mark Jones and people of that nature. You know, and even James Brown worked with me when, and his emphasis as an analyst, he worked with me as an analyst on college basketball. Sam Jones, the, the Hall of Famer, worked with me on college basketball. I mean, so I, I've been very, very fortunate I would say, you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, are you, do you regret not maybe being the Jim Nance of CBS or, 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 or you know, the, uh, whoever it might be the, the number one announcer. And I said, no, I have no regrets. I said, because I have done things, seen things, been able to accomplish things, travel and, and broadcast events that some people can't even dream about. I mean, I did the Goodwill Games in Moscow in 1986. I was assigned to gymnastics and track and field, you know, Carl Lewis and that group. So, I mean, I've seen, as you said, I've been to the mountaintop. So, like I said, you know, I don't, I don't have any, any regrets, believe it or not. You know, Charlie, you mentioned it, not just uh, certain sports. You did everything. <laughs> uh, what sport in which um, did you feel like you should have done it? You never had the opportunity to do. You know, I don't know. I, I've never, I, I've never truly wanted to do hockey. <laughs> you know, uh, hey, it's brothers that play hockey now, Charlie. Come that, on now. <laughs> that covered it. I've covered it because I was working in Philadelphia when the Philadelphia Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies, were in their heyday. So I was able to cover. And they were winning Stanley Cups. I was able to cover them, but I never actually broadcast a hockey game. Um, I've done baseball. I've done softball. Uh, I haven't, now, believe it or not, I've never done volleyball. <laughs> uh, I do track and field. Yeah. You know, um, for the most part, uh, I even do bowling. <laughs> you know, people <laughs> laugh at me and say, bowling. I say, well, but bowling is very interesting, especially on the collegiate level, the way they right. do it with the Baker format. So it's a little different. And, and uh, I work with some great people, you know, Randy Peterson and uh, people like that, you know. Uh, so it's, um, the, the people always say, what sport do you like the most? I like the fact that I like both basketball, football. I, I, I like them all, baseball. But I like the way the seasons come, football before basketball. And the reason is football is so much to prepare for. 
because you have 66, 65 players on each team. Anybody might get in a game at any given time. So you have to be ready for that number 13, you know, that you don't have on your roster. You've got to know who that is. Uh, but what I like about it, it transcends into basketball where your, your players are limited. <laughs> you only have 12 to 15 on a squad, so you don't have to prepare as much. It's easier to go from football to basketball than it is from basketball to football, I guess, <laughs> in, a, in a nutshell. <clears throat> he is the play-by-play pioneer. Charlie Neal with us here on Forward Progress. I use that moniker because it was the piece that I shared with our producer, Purnell and Kirk, a couple weeks ago, uh, which made us reach out to you, the the piece that The Ringer did, the play-by-play pioneer hiding in plain sight. What did you think about that feature? I thought he he did a very good job. I didn't know when the gentleman called me about doing the the article. Brian Curtis, right, was the author, right? Uh, I think he's from on the West Coast, I believe. But I didn't know him from the man in the moon. I didn't know a whole lot about the ringer, you know, to be honest with you. And uh, yeah, they're doing okay, Charlie. Yeah, apparently. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Very but good. anyway, he, he, he was asking me all these questions. I had no idea what the article was going to be about. He said, well, when I'm done with it, I will send you a copy. And, uh, you know, I thought, I thought he did a good job. You know, I mean, he told the story the way we talked. Uh, just like you and I are talking now, that's the way we talked on, on the on the telephone. And, uh, you know, he went all the way back <laughs> to the beginning and pulled out a whole lot of a lot of things. Of course, there's always stuff that you could always add, embellish or you could have left out. But I mean, for the most part, I thought he did a good job with it. You know, Charlie, you mentioned his name earlier, Eddie Robinson, and to me, I think he's like the grandfather of HBCU sports. But what other influences uh, throughout your years in broadcasting uh, have also been major influences that people really need to know more about as we start to get into this next generation of athletes that don't necessarily know the founding fathers of some of these uh, of some of the sports in the HBCU? Well, you know, what is interesting, I'm on the uh, committee. I'm the chairman of the Hall of Fame Committee for the Black College Football Hall of Fame, the uh, the selection committee. I'm the chairman of the selection committee. Uh, I succeeded Roscoe Nance. A lot of you know who Roscoe Nance is. He passed away last year, and he was the chairman. And when he uh, uh, passed on, they asked me if I would fulfill that role that he had. And I was honored that they asked me to do that. And one of the things that we come up with in, in discussions just that committee alone, when you go back and you're trying to pick out people to make eligible and put into the pipeline for possibly being inducted into the Black College Football Hall of Fame, you can go back many, many years. I mean, the John uh, Walton, who played at Elizabeth City State University as a quarterback. You know, there are people there's so many people deserving to be in there, but we can only put in so many at a time. But hopefully that's just one avenue and one direction that we can go to educate people on history when it comes to black colleges uh, in terms, you know, a lot of the young people today, they know nothing about Jerry Rice. <laughs> they know nothing about um uh, Charles Oakley, you know, they don't know these people because they have played, they've gone on and they, you know, they've had their day. They may be Hall of Famers, but the younger generation, we've got to keep that legacy and that name, those names 
arrives and in, in, in the forefront. So people will, you know, not say who's that, you know, uh, a lot of people don't know who Bill Russell is. You know, there's a big discussion this past weekend on the greatest team athlete, whether it be Bill Russell, Tom Brady or Michael Jordan. Well, Bill Russell has 11 championships, Michael Jordan, six, Brady, seven. So, I mean, you, you do the math, you know, it's, 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 it's numbers don't lie. Pretty easy right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, those are the types of things that need to be kept alive and, and kept out there uh, from a, a black college perspective, historically black colleges and universities and, there's so many people, Joe, Joe, uh, Joe Adams, 747, quarterback from Tennessee State. You know, people forget about him. Uh, Elbridge Dickey. You know, I mean, you guys probably know the names I'm talking about. But a lot of people sitting out there listening or watching us have no idea who these people are. So we've got to make sure we keep that legacy alive. Charlie, uh, fast forward, you know, from the time that you started this awesome showcase at BET to when... Uh, ESPN got into that. Listen, give us every college sport business uh, around 2005. In fact, you called the first game yes. on ESPNU Very uh, first in 2005. Yes. Uh, talk to me about how ESPN has been a steward for black college sports and, and what they should be doing more, if anything, uh, now that they hold this mantle now singularly. Well, when, when they first started it back in 2005, and like I said, the first game on first actually sporting event on ESPNU was a football game. It was Morehouse with Denzel Washington's son was playing for Morehouse at the time, John David Washington and, uh, and uh, Benedict College out of Columbia, South Carolina. They played it in, in Atlanta, Georgia. <clears throat> at that time, ESPN, I thought, was doing a fantastic job for the first three, four, maybe five years of really, really showcasing historically black colleges and universities. Uh, because ESPNU, they were trying to launch, get off the ground, get eyeballs on that, on that particular part of their family, the ESPN family. And, I mean, we were doing games, sometimes doubleheaders every week. You know, uh, whether it be Albany State and the SIC, a SWAC game, a CIAA game, a MEAC. You know, we were doing games all the time. Uh, Doubleheaders on Monday. It was on uh, basketball. We would do a, a SWAC game uh, as a secondary second game and a MEAC game as the first game. They do a 7 o'clock game and a 9 o'clock game. That has gone by the wayside now because all of a sudden now you've got the Southeast Conference TV network, the ACC network, the Big Ten network. These, what they're looking at is what's bringing in revenue. And they're starting to forego their initial commitment to HBCUs for the dollar. We understand Bob Johnson did the exact same thing when he jettisoned uh, Black College Sports from BET in 2004, 2003. And that's what pushed me over to ESPN, when he decided that, excuse me, when he decided that the, the advertising dollars was greater, he even jettisoned Video Soul with Donnie Simpson, because why do I need to pay Donnie Simpson to sit there and introduce a record when I can get the computer to do the same thing and bring in the same advertising dollars? So these, it becomes a business decision, even though you don't agree with it. 
and you, but you understand it. It's a business decision. And the same thing has happened with ESPN. Yes, they still do some black college events. They did one uh, Monday night. They did a basketball game Monday night with Norfolk State. And they will do a couple more and they'll do uh, the, the, the championship of the tournament for the men and the women of the SWAC and the MIAC. But you don't see any CIAA. You don't see any SIC games uh, involving uh, on ESPN right now, the Division II conferences. We did a lot of them the first couple of years. I remember the, the first couple of years with ESPN, we did a Thursday-Saturday game. And I one one year I did twenty one football games. Do you know how many? How hard it is to do twenty some football games? I did a game every Thursday and every Saturday. I'd leave home on on uh, on Wednesday, and I wouldn't get back home till Sunday. <laughs> and then I was I was gone again. You know, I mean, it was it was crazy. And not all of them were HBCUs, but a lot of them were. A lot of them were HBCU games, and you know it's a, it's it's a shame. Yes, they you know the commissioner, both the MIAC and the SWAC, have good relationships with ESPN, and ESPN kind of bends them backwards to try to make sure they're kept in the loop, but they're not doing as many as they used to. It used to be every Monday you saw an HB two two games in basketball. You know, every Saturday you had a football game. You know, Thursday. When they had Thursday night games, he had a football game from a black college. Not anymore. You know, last one for me, Charlie. Um, I don't know. I want to just just a personal question. Through all the, the football games that you mentioned that you've done, did you ever take a break at halftime or did you really sit back and watch the bands play? Like, I'm saying, does he even Why get not? to, I had, to my the bathroom or? I, had, I had to watch the dancing girl. Exactly. <laughs> hey, you want to be honest, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to be honest. I'm saying, look, he's got a football game going on halftime. You're supposed to grab a bite, go take a walk or use the restroom. And yet we know the fabric of HBC quick. is what quick. happens at halftime. Right. Right <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, it, it's funny because if you have been to HBCU games, a lot of times people are socializing <laughs> through the game in the first half. But when the bands hit the field for that showtime at halftime, everybody comes back to their seats to watch what's going on on the field, whether it's the Sonic Boom of the South or the, the uh, Southern University or FAMU or Texas Southern or Howard, no matter which band it is, the people want to see who's going to outdo the other person. So, uh, yeah, that was, I, I enjoyed the show. And that was the one thing that BET did. See, ESPN did not, they would carry maybe a portion of a song at halftime. And the whole premise, whether people know this or not, it has to do with um, the rights to the music. And you pay so much for so much, so, so many minutes of playing that music on your air. BET, because of their being a music video type station, was able to circumvent those types of fees. And that's why they could show both bands the whole halftime show where ESPN, if it wasn't original music that they created, they couldn't do it. Otherwise, they would be paying a, an enormous fee to the uh, music industry. Uh, 
Charlie, we appreciate the time. We so appreciate you and your, and your pioneering. And uh, listen, one of my colleagues, Eric Collins, who calls games for the Hornets, has kicked me in my ass a couple times about moving from hosting into play-by-play. I'm in my comfort zone, Charlie, but I, I think there's something there, and I appreciate you even firing that in my spirit a little bit. Well, not a problem. And you tell Eric I said hello when you talk to him. I haven't talked to him in a while. We worked oh, together when the ESPN first started. He was over there. He's been doing the Big Ten Network, too, also. Right. Yep. Yep. Oh, Charlie, we appreciate good. you, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you both. Have a good We're day. Gonna, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, there is a new documentary on ESPN Plus. Why not us? The producer, Stephen A. Smith, joins us next here on Forward Progress. Stay right there. This is Sirius XM Radio. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome back to Forward Progress. It's Morrison, it's Jackson, and joining us now, uh, one of the executive producers of a brand new documentary you do not want to miss. It premieres on February 12th, exclusively on ESPN+. Why Not Us? Going to take viewers behind the scenes of the North Carolina Central University basketball team, uh, an eight-episode documentary. Uh, it's in production with the undefeated on ESPN Plus, a new uh, venture as well. And one of the executive producers, Stephen A. Smith, joins us here on the program. First of all, Stephen, great to have you on Full Progress. Listen, it's been a long we, time, man. How you doing? It's great to see you. This this show for Kirk and I is fantastic. It's this wonderful cross section each week of of sports and race. Yeah. So I know that's exactly what the undefeated on ESPN Plus yeah. is all about. And you planting uh, this particular documentary in this space is perfect. Take us to the beginning when you and CP are talking about this idea and and getting it in production and on the air. Well, believe it or not, I was late to the party. Uh, what happened is, is that uh, CP3 would, uh, you know, with, with his production company and the folks that he's working with decided to um, put forth this documentary because obviously it's something that's near and dear to him. He's had a relationship with Coach Lavelle Moe in the North Carolina Central University uh, for several years. He knows him very, very well. They're pretty tight. And he wanted to do this docuseries on, you know, just the challenges that the program faces. And in spite of it all, uh, Coach Moten has taken them to unprecedented at Heights, winning about 58% of his games, winning, you know, like four MIAC championships, the list goes on and on. And considering the fact that you just got two basketball rims, you got one gymnasium, and you're right down the road to considering those paucity of the facilities available to you. And yet, and still, you're succeeding um, in an area where it's known for Duke and North Carolina, that's just eight to 10 miles away in Chapel Hill and in Durham, North Carolina, because that's where North Carolina Central is located, as you well know. Uh, North Carolina State University is about 20 miles away in Raleigh, et cetera. But yeah, here you are in the heart of all of that. And you're just you're just shining a light on HBCUs and co- uh, contributing the unprecedented success that you're contributing to the equation. I just thought that it was a great story to tell CP3 and those guys were doing this. And then ESPN, along with CP3, came to me after they had done a lot of tapings and what have you and asked me to get on board uh, to really executive produce the project. So it's an opportunity that I jumped after because, as you know, I've got my own show, Stephen A's World, that just debuted on ESPN Plus January 11th. 
Um, not only am I the host, but I'm the executive producer and my production company is co-producing that show. And so that's something that I wanted to get into big time where I'm behind the scenes and pretty much calling the shots to a degree as an executive producer uh, with my show and with other projects that I venture into as opposed to always being in front of the camera. And the fact that this happened to be, uh, the subject happened to be an HBCU, which is near and dear to my heart, is something I just couldn't run away from. And, and it's not something that, you know, just kind of came about for you, right, Stephen? It's, you know, for, for people who are fans of you and first take, there has been the HBCU week where you, you would travel to different HBCUs and broadcast a game. And you would get that reception of how much, you know, pride and poise in the band and, and what makes up the HBCU. So how much did what you were already doing influence you to say, you know what, we need to be doing a lot more than what we got going on now? Well, incredibly so, because anytime something, uh, you know, can be put forth that is going to benefit HBCUs is something that I feel compelled not to run away from. Uh, you know, being a brand ambassador for HBCU week, trying to bring attentions uh, to the challenges that HBCUs face and all, this, uh, you know, garnering all the support that we can. It's enabled me over the last few uh, couple of years to generate an 11, in excess of $11.4 million in scholarships uh, for, H for over 2,000 HBCU students. And so, I'm incredibly proud of that and, and looking forward to doing more of that. But something like this just contributes to that ultimate cause, because when you see somebody like Coach Moten uh, facing the challenges that he's faced, that not just with the players that he has, but the program that he represents, the competition that he's forced to go, that, that he has to go up against, uh, the, the kind of uh, dormant circumstances, the dire circumstances that he faces, and yet still, he ends up a champion. It's an incredible story that you want to tell because it transcends beyond that basketball program and speaks to HBCUs across the country. All HBCUs have challenges. Like, for example, I looked up this information a few weeks ago the lowest endowment for Ivy League schools, I believe it was like Brown at one point was at like at $3 billion. The absolute highest endowment that uh, an HBCU has received is $250 million. And so when you think about it and you see the comparisons, uh, Ivy League schools, for example, receive more than 10 times more support than the best HBCU programs in terms of, you know, whatever HBCU programs receive the most money. So when you pay attention to that and you recognize the challenges that HBCUs face and then you think about what it does for us, people like myself, who's a graduate of an HBCU, Winston-Salem State University, thinking about going to a school where people who look like you share your cultural background and some of the challenges that we all face as black men, as black people, uh, to, to look right next to you, in front of you, behind you, and know that there's an identity with all of those folks now it becomes a family kind of atmosphere and you've got cheerleaders, you've got mentors, you've got so many people that are there to help you lift you up from that abyss that you ultimately will fall in because we all fall at some point. The kind of things that are offered to you at HBCUs, you don't get anywhere else. And so we just want to use this why not us docuseries to highlight some of those things and to point to how there's an unprecedented level of success that you indeed can achieve going to an HBCU. And we want to show you an example of that. And we think that Coach Moen and his program is a shining example of what you can achieve as well. It premieres February 12th exclusively on ESPN+. As you've viewed this, these are such wonderful opportunities to provide this intimate look in these programs. In Why Not Us, what are we in store for and from that angle of just really understanding the plight of the everyday work? 
Well, you have a coach in Moten that can talk to students in ways, uh, to student athletes in ways that the typical, dare we say, uh, white coaches cannot. Uh, there's a cultural identity, again, the level of communication, the intimacy that comes along with this. You don't, you don't get just anywhere else. Some of the circumstances, how resigned people are to some of those plights, some of those circumstances, some of those, some of those obstacles that they have to climb and how you walk in there being a bit despondent at times not necessarily hopeful or just methodically going about the business of going through the dregs of an everyday uh, challenge. Some of the times you just accept it as is and then you're surrounded by people who say, no, we don't accept that here. We can do more. We will do more. We're going to achieve more. The world, they talk to you about the world and what the world has waiting for you once you depart from this university, once you depart from these friendly confines, confines that you might complain about, confines that you might lament about over and over and over again until you open your eyes or your eyes are open for you and you realize, nah, there's a, there's a harsher world waiting for us than even the one that we're enduring right now. And so, you know, you just highlight some of those things and tell those stories, you know, you get into the competition and, and, and some of the challenges that you face going up against them, how they're in privileged positions compared to you and how you have to adapt and you have to overcome COVID-19, the challenges that HBCUs face because of this coronavirus pandemic, uh, how it might be different from what you uh, might witness at predominantly white institutions. All of those things come into play and all of those things will be a part of the docuseries as well. Stephen, talk to me a little bit about this transition you have now mm -hmm. and it's not like we're still not going to enjoy what we have for the last two decades of you being out front and, and being the star in, in these dynamics but more so being the person at, in the ep chair thinking mm -hmm. about content thinking about responsibilities of everybody on the show while you're still doing all your shows and how that's been for you well, for me personally, uh, it's something that I've waited for for my entire career, Jason, as somebody that used to work at, at the mothership, as they say, the worldwide lead and what have you. Um, you know how challenging it can be. Uh, it's not that people haven't been supportive of me and I, I haven't achieved a, a, a great level of success that I'm blessed to have achieved. Uh, but let's face reality, you know, you're viewed as talent. And a lot of times when you want to put on that executive hat, uh, you want to make decisions and you want to be behind the scenes doing what other people are doing, there's some resistance to that. And I would be lying if I said that that wasn't the case for the vast majority of my career thus far. I think when a lot of people see me on first take and in, in the morning on ESPN and they've seen me covering the NBA and stuff like that. They forget I've been at ESPN since 2003. They forget that I've been in this journalism business for 27 years. I take it as a compliment because that means I don't look like I'm in my 50s or 60s. Or <laughs> uh, but, but nevertheless, I've been around, brother. I've been around for quite a long time. And so, you know, to get to a point in your career where you're able to take the level of expertise that you've witnessed as a talent and transcend it to a higher level, meaning as an executive where you're influencing talent that's on the air, that's in front of the camera. You're, you know, formulating programs and implementing things uh, for the audience to see that you didn't get an opportunity to do before in your career. It's an incredible thing to me. And another thing to me uh, was diversity. I mean, when I think about my show, Stephen A's World, one of the things, I mean, before we even had a meeting, I made it very, very clear. You just make sure uh, at least, at least, 40% of my staff is black. I don't give a damn. I don't even want to talk about it. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing to talk about. All right. It's Stephen A's world, right? Well, 
no disrespect because I'm, I'm not about just black appeal. I'm about mass appeal, but I am a black man. I'm a proud black man and I'm a brother and there's no way in hell that I'm going to have my own show and I'm not going to be surrounded by my own to some degree. And that is applicable to anything that I choose to do. And so I know CP3 is highly sensitive to that as well. Um, and, and it's not that we don't have white individuals working with us because we do. Um, and it's incredibly important to get the best talent that you possibly can get, regardless of race, ethnicity, whatever the case may be. But in the end, there are so many of us that have a story to tell. And when it comes to historically black colleges and universities, obviously that's a very pertinent thing that's going on in my life that I think is pertinent and in, 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 in just, just in the American vernacular, or at least it should be. And as a result, I've made it a priority to make sure that I do my little part and showcasing and highlighting, you know, a talent from the African-American community that's out there waiting to be seen so they can shine in front of the masses as I've been blessed and fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do myself. You know, Stephen, is there a, um, a sort of a ground, not a groundbreaking, but is there a player or is there a movement that needs to happen in terms of just having more exposure to the HBCU, whether it's basketball, football? We're seeing it kind of with Jackson State hiring Deion Sanders. But in terms of with the NBA's kind of one and done rule, where we're seeing guys not necessarily go to college for a year or should they go to college for a year? What would having an athlete bring more attention to the HBCU that can bring more eyeballs and watch more television to say you can't have success and still make it to the professional ranks going through this route? Well, I, I will say this. Um, everybody has a right to do what they believe is best for their individual selves as they try to ascend in this world. There's enough obstacles that exist without creating additional ones for yourself. I will say that. Having said that, um, would it be nice to see athletes collectively go about the business of bringing more attention to HBCU, similar to what CP3 has attempted to do? And in concert with Carmelo Anthony and, and, and Dwayne Wade, guys that have decided to go back for their degrees. And in Chris, Chris Paul's case, uh, um, I think that, uh, you know, I know for a fact that he's taking classes at Winston-Salem State to finish his degree, even though he went to Wake Forest. And so you pay attention to things of that nature. And certainly there are things that they can do. But as I've proposed to him and others, I said, you know something? What's wrong with having exhibition games every year at HBCUs? When you, when you talk about preseason games, rather than having them at NBA arenas or whatever, right. how about going around and, and, tour and going through the HBCUs, the Winston-Salem States, the North Carolina yeah. Central? the Howard University and others. Why not go to these certain places and do that? Because if you go to those programs just for the preseason, just for the preseason, that can play a very pivotal role in bringing attention and a spotlight on HBCUs and what those potential programs may have to offer. Because what you can do is just like when, when the social justice issues began percolating even more so in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing. And when they came back into the bubble and while they were in the bubble, they made sure to bring attention to Breonna Taylor and others who were killed or who were unarmed and killed by law enforcement officials. You know something? Just like you can insist to the media that that's what you're going to address during the preseason and you can simply ensure that you're going to address the plight of HBCUs and how they, they can use all the support that they can get because it could help, it could help uplift the African-American communities throughout the United States of America. You can do things like that, okay? And there's no, there's no harm, no foul to it. It's, all, it's a plus for all parties involved. You can make things like that happen, and I think 
stuff like that will go a long way because if you do things like that, the more people know about it, the more people will be interested in enrolling at HBCUs. And then you find out about the McCoy makers of the world who elected to go to Howard University this season. Stuff like that can happen when you bring attention and the spotlight to some of these programs. That's what the show will do as well. Why not us? Eight episode HBCU docuseries. It debuts on February 12th exclusively on ESPN+. Stephen, congratulations on the project. Thank you for the time, brother. Thank you, my brother. Y'all take it easy. You got it. Okay. Once again, special thanks to Stephen A. Smith for joining us, to Charlie Neal for swinging by as well, for our producer, Pernell Brown. He is Kirk Morrison. I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress. Forward Progress.